This podcast is sponsored by Uncana, trusted natural solutions. Uncana is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncana team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncana is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code MENTORS4MIL the number four, M-I-L, at checkout at uncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. taking some time to come on here and share your story man yeah i appreciate you guys having me on it's great of course you know you wrote a book called tip tip of the spear and we're going to get into that but i also want to get into just like in the very beginnings where are you originally from okay so yeah i'm uh i'm originally from so i was i was born in uh fall river mills california but i was raised in oregon so a little uh little logging town uh called lowell oregon okay yeah, it's outside of uh, it's outside of Springfield, Eugene. But yeah, I was I was raised there, and then at eighteen, you know, I um I joined my first branch of the military to get out of our little town of thirteen hundred people. So so when you say the first branch, yeah. So I've been in three branches of the military. I started off in the uh, in the Navy, and I did you know I did four years in the Navy, um, and then I got out for a while and uh, was trying to like. I don't know, kind of figure a path for myself, but yeah, I don't, yeah, I just, military is more kind of my niche. So, um, at the time, uh, my ex-wife and I, we agreed upon the air force cause it wasn't, you know, it wasn't gonna, it wasn't the army, right. which is what, which is what I wanted, but we were good with the air force. And then, uh, when we got divorced, I switched over to the army. So Navy first four years, air force four years again. Uh, about five in the Air Force. Okay, what was your MOSs in both of those two? So I was a bosun's mate in okay. the Navy, and I was an ammo troop in the Air Force. Ammo it, troop. Okay. Yeah, it was a great job. Ammo is a really good career, or really good career field, tight knit. But yeah. So yeah. after nine years of service, you get out somewhere within this. I take it while you were in the Air Force, you decided, okay, you know, maybe it was after the divorce. I'm going Army. And mm-hmm. did you have a break, a, a separation break there for a long period of time or no? Okay. No, I, I went, I did a program called uh, blue to green and it's where oh. you transition directly over to the army, um, from the air force. And they, there's also programs like uh, green to blue where army can transfer over to the air force and, uh, pick up a job there or whatnot like that. If, if the, if they're in an overman career field and they're moving to an underman career field. So like me, my, um, my job was overmanned in the air force, but, um, but you know, special forces in the army <laughs> was not overmanned. So I was yeah. able to kind of take that leap of faith and, and jump straight, you know, straight into something. So this is basically what you wanted from day one though, or at least somewhere within your Navy career, you decided that army was the direction that you wanted to go into. Um, so 
Yeah and no. I mean, I had a, um, you know, I went through, uh, you know, did my time in the Navy and whatnot like that. I, um, I actually, you know, I had the special operations, I guess, bug, you could say, Mm -hmm. but I, you know, I failed out of buds. And so, um, with that kind of lingering over my head and, uh, really, um, I I would say it really like it, it destroyed my confidence. Mm. Um, so the air force, you know, I, I was going to try for their special operations program, but it was crazy enough. I I wasn't medically qualified. It's like, huh? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, with the army, it was, I just, I had so many negatives stacked up against me with like, uh, divorces, um, failing, failing out of, you know, buds and, and this, this, uh, this thing's going wrong and this thing's going wrong. And I just, I needed a victory. I needed something to, um, completely just immerse myself into. And, um, and I needed a W in my column cause I had a whole lot of L's and, um, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I was learning, you know, I, I was definitely, as I was, I, I can't really call it failures, but as I was not achieving my set goal, I was learning from it. But man, there's only so much you can learn before you need a W in your column. Yeah, I call that and, failing forward, yeah. right? Because you're still moving. Yeah. <laughs> I've done yeah. a lot of failing forward, a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, that's uh, that's basically. So then, you know, when when I was going through my you know my second divorce, uh, <laughs> yeah, un- unfortunately enough, but um, I just yeah, I just needed. I needed a complete change of everything. And so I was actually, um, I was in the air forces, like their personnel office, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. And I saw this poster on the wall that had a guy in uniform and half of the guy was in an air force uniform. The other half in the army and said blue to green. So I went in and I asked, I was like, Hey, what is this program about? And they said, well, if you fall underneath these jobs, they're over, man, you can switch over to the army. And I was in one of those jobs. And so, um, I went, I started the process, went to a recruiter and he said, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. What do you got? He goes, well, we could take you for a special forces contract. I was like, ha, I don't, yeah, I have no luck in special operations in the military. He said, you know what, if I don't, if I, um, don't try. Yeah. I'm going to regret it the rest of my life. I'll have what ifs just circling around my head. Yeah, absolutely. I was like, all right, well, I'm pretty sure I know how this is going to end. It's going to end just like the other ones did, but I'm at least I'm going to say I tried. And so, yeah. So the medical condition that you had within the air force prohibited you from going into special operations there didn't have any effect or bearing on you going into the army's special no. force. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, ba- basically what it was, was, um, so for the air force, they, they have an amazing, um, I mean, so do, all the branches do, mm-hmm. but they're, um, they're pretty, pretty strict when it comes to their dudes, because, um, I mean, they're, you know, combat control and pararescue is, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's some top of the line stuff right there. Yeah. And it's not that being a green beret isn't a green beret definitely is. But there's there's more to there, there's more flexibility as in the Air Force. It's it's basically like, hey, man, if you don't meet this standard, sorry, we got a whole we got a whole lot of guys to choose from. Whereas in the Army, um, 
for me, it was like, hey, we understand, you know, it's something that happened in the past because it was depression medication. Mm, okay. You know, and it was like, you understand it's something that happened in the past. You're not affected by it now. So, yeah, come on over. Whereas in the Air Force, and I understand it, but the Air Force like, uh, are we going to take a chance with this guy or just, nah, there's a history of it, so no. And I completely understand it, but, you know, those, those, those dudes, they've got so many guys that they could choose from that are just itching to go into such a small career field like combat control and pararescue. So um, they, they could be choosy if they want, and hey, it's, <laughs> it's your money. Be yeah. choosy as you want. Well, the pipeline is so long as well over in those mm-hmm. types of programs. So, you know, they already know that they're going to have so much attrition. They want to make sure they have the best going into that pipeline, like you're saying. Yeah. Like, I, I totally get it. So yeah. looking at this thing, I mean, did you have to go under this program? Did you have to go back through a basic training since you had been out for so long in from a basic training environment? Well, yeah. So I, I went through Navy basic. And then when I transitioned over to the Air Force, I just kind of had to do a, um, just like a prior service indoctrination course, whatever, really okay. easy. Uh, the Army, not so much. It was back to infantry basic and everything. And oh, I, wow. I loved it. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I loved it because it took my mind off of everything. Um, I was able to totally immerse myself into it. You know, I'm the old guy there. I'm 29 years old. You know, I'm the old guy there and, you know, I'm helping. I'm helping these young cats out just like, Hey man, it's, it's, it's the game. He, he doesn't yeah. hate you because he's yelling at you. It's, it's the game. Play the game. Right. You know, it's like the world's not ending because you got, you know, you know, you got tore up. It's, it's this, this is what it is. Yeah. And, um, and it was awesome and it took my mind off everything. How old so. were you? I mean, what year was this? Like 2008 or something like that? 2008. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. You go through the normal pipeline that you do then for mm-hmm. 18X, and you're off at OSIT, and I guess after that, you end up going off to, uh, what is it, pre-SFAS before airborne school? No, so how how it worked for me was when I transitioned over to the Army, I had to do this prior service course in New Mexico, which was supposed to be... I guess, um, you, you know, the old saying, like every, every, every person in the army is a, a rifleman first, mm-hmm. same thing with the Marine Corps. Yeah. Well, that's basically what it's supposed to be. And then I was supposed to, uh, meet up with, um, the infantry class at Benning when they reached AIT. Well, I wasn't exactly sure where I was supposed to go or anything. So I just fell in the line and I ended up, you know, going through the entire basic, which was fine. Yeah. Um, with me, um, but then I went basic to airborne, and then airborne I went over to um, pre-selection. Yeah, and then uh, from pre-selection to selection, and right, and then on the uh, the fourteen the months. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> long what, time. What was it like after you know having gone already through the Navy and the Air Force, and now you're going into the Army? What was like the differences of those three? I'm just very curious. There's not very many people I've ran into that has almost circled the the main four branches, you know. And I, <laughs> I you know, I'm not leaving out the Coast Guard or even the Space Force here, but you know, yeah, just, yeah. Um, so the Navy, uh, switching from the Navy over was the biggest challenge I had because the rank structure is completely different. Oh, yeah. Um, and I was going from, you know, the, the mid nineties to late nineties Navy to where certain things were still acceptable to more of a PC friendly 2003 air force to where my jokes all of a sudden 
not so funny anymore. <laughs> and there's a lot of people that could be offended being on an all male ship to, you know, yeah. um, both, uh, female and male airmen. So yeah, I had to grow up very quickly or else, you know, I'd lose my job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but it's good. You, you can't, you can't, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's mid nineties. I mean, when you landed at Camp McCall, well, I'm just curious to know, you know, you'd already reached this point. This was your, now your dream. You wanted to go into special operations. What was that feeling like when you got there? Was it like an, oh shit, um, this is real or. So during pre-selection training, that was about a month long. Um, I remember thinking like, this is extremely hard, but it's all the stuff I'm good at. So mm-hmm. like I figured out, you know, when I went through buds that, I'm good with doing everything except for anything underwater. I do not like to be under the water. I like to breathe. And so, and the thing, the reason why special, um, special forces and green beret, um, it was kind of right up my alley is because yeah, we have our dive teams and our halo teams and stuff like that. But, um, you could be on a team where they just say, Hey man, you're going to carry a lot of weight and you're just going to move and go find the enemy Find, fix, and kill the enemy. And I was like, I can do that. Yeah. And yeah. I don't have to go to dive school. And I was like, man, this is this is gonna be great. Why doesn't everybody do this? Right. So, <laughs> but um, but yeah, just just carrying heavy weights and movement to contact and just you know all, all the stuff that you know I was like, yeah, this is this is me. Yeah. And so yeah, when I got to Camp McCall and I was going through the um eight when I was going through the um, pre-selection course. Um, I remember a, a, again, it was, it was extremely hard. It was, it was rigorous. It was supposed to be, it was actually harder for me than selection was, but they do that for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so the guys that go through the pre-selection, cause not everybody goes through pre-selection. Right. Um, yeah, just the x-rays do. Right. And so, but when I got the selection, I was besides team week, I mean, team week was super hard, obviously, but I remember pre-selection. There was times in pre-selection that were a lot harder than selection was. Yeah. Yeah. So how did it feel finally getting off the Robin Sage and, and uh, you know, finally getting a chance to go through that and, and put on Don that Green Beret? Yeah. I mean, it was uh, – I I guess be, the the Q course is extremely long. And um, and it's, it, it's kind of you, – you never quite – you never quite know that you're good. So I know a lot of courses I've been to, as you progress through their pipeline, you start to get more seniority. Guys kind of leave you alone. It's like, all right, hey, man, let's we're done pounding dudes into the dirt. Let's just, you know. Well, it seemed like every single phase, minus language phase, every single phase in the Q course, you're a brand new new guy again. You didn't know anything. It was it was beat down 101. It's like you were back in selections. Man, when am I ever going to like get some sort of respect? I'm here. Well, I finally, you know, I get the Robin Sage and it was a, it, it, I mean, it was, it was tough. Our Robin Sage was, you know, um, winter storms and, uh, Oh yeah, it was, it, it, North was, it was no joke in the winter too at times. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember our infill was, you know, we we're in three feet of snow and all of our canteens and everything were frozen and it was just like, what, what is going on right now? This is, yeah. And so, but I, and so when I finally, like everything is said and done, cause then again, even in Robin Sage, you kind of were back to that new guy thing again. And right. that's the end. 
And when it was all finally said and done, I, I, I think I remember like wondering like, uh, what's okay. What's next? You know, as far as in like, when am I going to be the new guy again? Uh, you don't have to wait long. You right. gotta just show up to your company, and then it's like you've never done anything in your life. You're this piece of shit coming in, and no one, you're not battle tested, and no one can trust. Yeah, and it's I was like, holy cow, man! I'm constantly just a new guy. Yeah, I was like, when do you when do you ever not become a new guy anymore? Yeah, <laughs> like so, when you retire. <laughs> what was your rank at this time period? Because typically, guys that go the 18 X-ray, you know, I guess by the time they finish this part it's not too long before they're pinning on e5 so were you already in e5 or e4 coming into this okay yeah i was in e5 and i uh pinned on e6 before i graduated all the right key course so mm -hmm. yeah okay that makes total sense and and that's kind of typical too you know you end up yeah they don't want somebody walking around with the you know with the green beret or on that's a pfc it just doesn't fit i wish they would bring those days back <laughs> yeah well and you know back in the day it used to be that you had to have two years of experience in the military before you could even apply uh for yeah. you know q course and everything yeah. and you had to be at least the rank of an e4 and so i kind of feel the same way i kind of feel like it's a better pipeline i totally understand the need to ramp up the force and you know, they're allowing the 18 x-ray program and all that kind of good stuff. But there's something to be said about that other route too, because you, yeah. you gain a lot of maturity, you know, yep. you, you get a chance to go within the conventional forces and see what that's like and mm -hmm. having to do the things, you know, marching, not, not having a, your hands in your pockets and, and those types of things. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I mean, even though uh, once you become a green beret, you're supposed to have your hands in your pockets. Right. Exactly. Right. It's in your, in your hair, in your hair, completely out of rigs, <laughs> but that's just, you know, right. Right. Yeah. Oh man. So, um, you end up going through this and I guess, uh, did you select seven special forces group or how did that work out? Oh man. So yeah. Um, I, I was selected for seven special forces group. Okay. And that all came after a language aptitude test. Okay. So in selection, they were like, wow, you, uh, you are very physical. You are a team player. And I, I have a couple, whenever guys talk to me about any special operations, I was like, it's easy. I was like, always look for work, carry the heaviest shit and always smile regardless of how you feel. just smile. <laughs> and then you'll be fine. Well, Test scores come into that too because special forces, unlike, well, I can't say unlike, but they're very different from the different branches because we do the uh, we do our alternate language, and um, you know, Robin Sage, unconventional warfare is supposedly our bread and butter, whereas in a lot of the other um, special operation units, it's direct action, mm -hmm. and so, and so we do language aptitude tests just to see, hey man, is this guy smart? Well. I was on the level of no way, not even close <laughs> to smart. Like curious if I could even speak English. Oh my and, God. Uh, and so, yeah. And so they look, um, when it comes down to that, if they want you, they're like, all right, it may take this guy 10 years to get through language school, but we'll get him there. If they want you, then they're going to find the group with, uh, I'm not going to say the lowest language cause that's, right. you know, Spanish isn't easy. But with um, an easier, like people can pick up on Spanish easier than they can of Ryan Hendrickson going to speak Mandarin Chinese. Right. Oh, yeah. Most probably, pro yeah. probably not going to happen. Right. And seventh group needed guys. And so it was seventh group. Yeah. So when you arrived there, 18 Charlie, right? 
uh, yep. Special Forces group. You're down in, uh, you went down to Fort Walton Beach area, Destin area? No, when I first got to 7th group, we were still Bragg. up at Bragg. Okay, mm-hmm. so what was that transition like for you then when you got a chance to go? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when I um, so I failed the or failed, I finished the Q course. Uh, no, um, you know, no hiccups at all. It was one one shot straight through, and um, graduated and I'm um, getting ready to. Uh, I'm I'm heading over to seventh group, and I'm actually, you know, I actually feel like I've accomplished something. Yeah, it's like man, I'm like oh green beret. This is this is amazing. You know, I got that <laughs> W in my column. And, you know, chess is out there just a tad bit more than normal. You know, I was wearing, you know, got my green beret on and, and all the other trainees is like, yeah, I did it. And then I show up to the company and yeah. Oh my gosh. New guy. <laughs> uh, extremely new guy. Yeah, Fresh meat. Showing up to a company that literally was just returning from Afghanistan mm. and um, I showed up and is wow yeah so it took all of my coolness and um everything that i thought that i was leaving the q course and it and it just crushed it yeah it's like oh my gosh this is (laughs) and i've been the new guy quite a few times but this was something else so yeah um 2010 i guess was your first deployment yeah to afghanistan so you guys Okay. As a green beret, yep. Yeah, so you guys, um, they must not have been back very long before they just turned right back around then. Yeah, which is typical, you know, the op, op tempo. Yeah, it was during the surge. I mean, yeah. the surge, um, you know, they uh, they had initiated the surge, and it was it was everybody. They were home for, we were home for a couple months, and then it was like, hey, it's, it's, it's time to head back over. We had um, – um, Admiral Mullen come and talk to us, the chairman joint chief of staff at the time. And it's just like, Hey, sorry, but this, this needs to be done. So yeah, yeah it was quick. Where did you end up going 2010? So we went to the, um, so I actually went to firebase Tice. Firebase okay. Tice is in a Ruzgan province, but all of our missions were in the Hellman. And so we were all down along the Hellman river, yeah. which, which basically, my AO was between the uh, the Hellman Bridge and Firebase Cobra, and so that whole um, valley along the river there was, I mean, and it was it was super bad place. But yeah. that was that was where we uh, we conducted our village stability operations. So tell me what happened on that that day within 2010 that kind of changed your life. So yeah, so. Uh, September September 11th we um were we were kicking off on a mission to you know it was going to be a company wide mission and we we're going to clear the uh, along the Hellman River um and there there was I mean the Taliban were dug in there for because we'd been duking it out with them for months and um they had like a World War 1 style trench on one side of the river they'd fight us from and villages were just completely you know um they they were all they they were all basically kill boxes, um, so okay you know we've been messing around here we have atmospherics on on the valley for the last you know three months four months, um, we're going to uh, yeah we're going to initiate this clearance operation September 11th great day to start, so we had moved across the Hellman River and uh, we had staged and we were getting ready for our next our next uh, leg, which was when we were going to initiate the clearance. Um, of the first village mm-hmm. and we had taken 
I mean, just tons of fire from this area. And it's like, okay, there's going to be some bad guys here. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, late night, September 11th, we push off, turns into September 12th and we're moving up to this, um, you know, we were, we had broken up into different clearance teams. And so, um, to, you know, to kind of tackle the, the village in different ways, sure. kind of like an L shape, um, and, and clear that trench. Cause that trench was, was a bad area. So, uh, my team, uh, we, we were responsible for the first three compounds and, uh, moving up there was, you know, nobody was there. I mean, you know, it's three o'clock in the morning, so who's going to be there, but, um, dead quiet, nothing. It's like, oh, <laughs> this is bad. So, um, so you know, we um we we start we start moving up to the first set of compounds, and I told our interpreter um, Nick, I said, hey man, you need to um, okay, hey let's 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 get our Afghans inside this first compound, and we'll start our clearance, you know, compound by compound, how it always works. And uh, so uh, Nick, our terp, he he relayed the information, and um. I'm thinking things are about ready to get going. This is going to be good. And I turned around and those, the Afghans, they won't move. I said, Hey Nick, what's the problem, man? Tell them to get in that compound. So he tells them again, they say something back and forth and he goes, uh, Hey Ryan, it's there. They're, they said they won't go. I said, they won't go. Like, what, what do you talk about this? They have to, right? Right. Everyone? Has to? No. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, um, and he's like, they said, it's too dangerous. They said they won't go. It's like, oh man, this this is not what the way this was all drawn out. Yeah. And so, um, and our rehearsals and everything like that. So, you know, I turned around to tell the guy that the other American that was with me because it was two Americans for like every eight or nine Afghans in a clearance element. Mm -hmm. And I turned around to tell him, and he's like, "Well, hey man, I need you to go tell Nick to get away from that door." And you know, I, I say door, but it's like it was an entryway with a bunch of sticks up against it. Sure, yeah. And I turned back around, and Nick had like ran like 15 meters down towards the first compound, and he's trying to like mess around with the door a little bit or the breach point to try and coax these guys. Like, hey, look, I'm down here; it's safe. Come on down. And uh, I was like, oh crap, that's not cleared. And we, you know, we'd already seen, um, in our past, we've seen animals step on IEDs in these areas. And it's like, um, holy cow from our overwatch positions, you know, in, in the, you know, past months when we were getting atmospherics on the Valley. And so I, I start moving down to, uh, where Nick's at and I grab a hold of him and say, like, Hey man, like wrong answer, bro. Because if you lose your turp, you can't communicate. And if you can't communicate, we already have a bunch of guys that are saying they won't do it. So what are they going to do? They they could leave. Yeah. Or worse, you you never yeah. know. Um, and, then, and then there's just a few of you guys. Yeah, communication breakdowns a big deal. Yeah. So I grab a hold of him. I was like, no, this is we need to go back. We need to regroup. Grab him, and I pull him out of the doorway. And because you you never have like your side or your back or anything exposed to the unknown, I had kind of. Um, pivoted back around so my m4 at least my m4 was pointing inside the breach point there so if any anybody decided to run out and and start shooting it i wasn't getting shot in the back i was able to you know yeah to return fire and hopefully just get shot in the front plates 
And, um, and so I started moving back and I would look back to see where I was stepping and then just this huge flash of light and this blast that, I mean, it was, it, uh, it's, it's, it seems really loud on TV when you're watching stuff like that. But, um, when it actually happens to you because it damages your ears so much, it wasn't really that loud, Yeah. but apparently it rocked the whole Valley. <laughs> wow. And that, and that pretty much, um, yeah, and I, I didn't even know I had stepped on the IED at first. I thought Nick hit it, or I thought maybe we took an RPG, or I mean, your brain can't comprehend what's going on. So I had no idea. And so I don't know. The only thing I know is I can't breathe because the amount of dust and the ammonia from the HME and everything, I can't breathe. I and I, and I remember thinking like, if I don't breathe, I'm, I'm going to suffocate. So I was trying to do these small little breaths, but and at the same time, I kept trying to get up, but I couldn't. So I'd get up and fall over, get up and fall over. And so now I'm getting pissed because, you know, why, why can't I get up? Am I stuck in it? Am I stuck on something, but you can't see anything. And the sun is like, the sky has turned um, light. The sun hasn't come up yet, but the sky has turned light. So now, you know, there's some visibility out there. And, uh, I was, uh, I remember as like, as the dust started to clear a little bit, I was like, okay, what, what is going on? And I saw my boot, and it was it was kind of away from my body. And I was thinking, oh, I remember, shit, I, Ryan. Yeah, I remember. I was thinking, I was like, wow, when when did I take my boot off? Like I don't remember trying to, because your your mind can't comprehend. Yeah. That's just believe yeah. it or not. For any listener out there, it's not natural to step on an IED. Yeah. So your <laughs> so your mind your mind can't comprehend it. And I was like, man, what is going on with my boot? And so. I remember I wanted to get a better look, so I grabbed behind my knee and I lifted my leg up and my boot flopped off to the side to where basically my toes almost hit me in my ass. Oh shit. And and that's when and then I and then I saw my tib and my fib sticking out of my pant legs and they were just pearly white bones. Like I couldn't even recognize what they were. And then that's when I was like, Oh, okay, yeah, this is really bad. Um I, I, I got I'm hit, I'm hit, I'm hit, and you know, goes from there. So how many how many seconds was all this taking place before like, you know, the medic and your other teammates finally figured out that, you know, your the IED was you and you're still alive and getting to you? I mean, I, I imagine yeah. all this was like milliseconds, all these thoughts that you just kind of ran through. Um, yes and no. So I remember I felt like I was laying there for hours, but I was actually laying there for minutes. Mm. And minutes is a very long time. It is, yeah. And Jeez. um so the other American that was with me, he um and rightfully so, he knew not to come running after me because there's IEDs everywhere. Yeah. Whereas there where there's one, there's five. That's the saying we have, but it's the truth. Yep. And so, you know, they start he he starts getting the Afghans to start clearing towards me. Well, one of the Afghans, he was close to me already, so he starts trying to put my tourniquet on. And um, and I, I just remember, like, you know, my um, the other American that was with me is, you know, yelling at me, don't move, Ryan. I was like, where do you think I'm going to go? You know, I'm not, <laughs> right. not going to go anywhere. And I'm, and I'm, just, I'm just laying there. But, yeah, it was the most helpless feeling in the world. Like, I remember looking back one time, and, and they, they were still so far away, like, like 15 meters is a long way. That's yeah, that's a long damn way. And um I remember looking back and I was like, I, I'm going to die here today. Like this wow, because everything just happened. Yeah. You know, and you can't 
you know, I mean, people are like, ah, but the, the will to live and stuff like that. And that's, and, and that's great and all. And I understand that, but there's also, you, you have conflicting battles in your head is like, wow, I, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I'm probably going to die here today, right along the Hellman river in this shithole village. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It occurred to me as, geez, this is, uh, not really how I saw it going. <laughs> how much did you end up bleeding out? So actually, believe it or not, I um, I only needed two blood transfusions. So I didn't bleed out too terribly much because the blast had, I uh, guess, carterized. Yeah, carterized. Yeah, the arteries. Yeah. Wow. Some of it. But I, um, I went into a pretty bad shock. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize shock can kill you um, mm. because – um, as I, as I remember looking back and I was like, yeah, this is all right, man. I mean, I guess what's that light? Everyone says, you know, I'm waiting, right. trying to see what this light is and, and, you know, God's hand reaching down, like, come on up, you know, or something like that. I'm just like, what, what happens now? What happens now? And then I was, I'm just going to go to sleep. And so I went, I tried to go to sleep and then that's when the first American got to me. His name was George and he just slapped the crap out of me. <laughs> And I was this what is man, quit slapping me. I just wanna I'm just tired. I just wanna go to sleep. Just let me go to sleep. And nope, don't go to sleep, dude. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was but yeah, it's about I don't know. It felt like forever and I, I wasn't running a stopwatch, but it was like over three minutes before wow. the first American, yeah. And how long was it before you guys could get to a position where you could get exfiled out? Yeah, see that was the bad part. So we were trying to get um, we were ter- we were trying to get a medevac in. The problem was the Taliban had knew what happened, and so because they were cheering over ICOM radio, um, you know you know how we monitor their their mm-hmm. FM freaks. Well, they were cheering and yeah, and then hey, put in an ambush and you know blah blah blah, all the stuff that you're supposed to do in war. It's like all right, good for them, um, but because of the amount of IEDs in the area. No air crew could land right there. It's like, hey man, you, you could lose one guy or you can lose an entire air crew. Like, what do you what, what's it gonna be? So all right, so we gotta pick this dude up and we gotta move him. And it was like five hundred meters to get me to a place Holy that we could uh God. Yeah. Yeah. It sucked. <laughs> all by fireman's carry, and I don't care who you are, fireman's carry is painful when your legs like blown off. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Because I mean yeah, I mean he's moving, mm-hmm. and you're dangling. You yeah. know, yeah. Oh my God, just the visualization of that. You know, yeah, because they had ace wrapped my leg up real good. You know, they put in a splint, just ace wrapped the crap out of it, and it's like, all right, we gotta go. They can they can unmess all of this up at the first you know roll three or whatever it was that yeah. I was gonna get flown into. But it's it's time it's time to move. We're not trying to get in a firefight right here because we are also on the low ground. So oh. if the Taliban, if the Taliban came up over the hill, it was game on. How long and did it, it end up taking you guys to get out the 500 meters? Then I, I, I can't. I'm not exactly sure. I just know that it was all. It was, it was probably a little over an hour from, from when I got blown up to when I was on a bird um, heading out of mm. you know, of the helmet. So wow. Yeah, as long. <laughs> they take you back to a fire base. Yeah, so I went. I went to uh, Taryn Cout or uh, TK, mm-hmm. and um, that was the that was the first uh, that was the first like um, medical stop I had. Whereas 
you know, hey, um, this dude's shock and all this other stuff, allergic reaction to morphine. And, um, and you know, it's like, yeah, we need, we need to do surgery now. And I remember hearing one of the nurses say like, hey, he's, you know, we need to get him in now. Um, he doesn't look good. He may not make it. And I was like, if I can hear all this, yeah. there's no way they're talking about me. Yeah. And so I still don't know. And, and again, I talked to a nurse that was there um, years later and she was like, oh yeah, you, you flatlined on the table. And, oh, um, my, yeah, my buddy, um, the Delta who was with us, he had wrote a note that said, you know, if you're reading this, um, you made it, you know? And I was like, wow, that's, it was something, you know? And so I didn't realize basically what shock could really do to you, Yeah, you know? Cause usually it's like, ah, oh, the guy died of blood loss or, oh, whatnot. But I, I just don't. Yeah. It, it, it was weird. It's, but who, who, who knows? <laughs> How long did it take before you finally came out of shock? And, and, uh, then, you know, did they take you right into surgery or was it, you know, I, oh, they were, it? they were cutting clothes off at the minute I was getting the minute they were um, hauling me off the helicopter, they were cutting clothes off and okay. taking vitals and all this other stuff. And it was basically like, um, you know, hey, that's what I heard. The nurse, she's like, hey, he doesn't look good. We need to, we need to go now, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I've watched too many war movies and I just made it up. I have no idea. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, I had met a nurse that said, yeah, I was in real, I was in real bad shape. Um, she had reached out to me, you know, from the book, um, and it's like, yeah, I was, I was one of your nurses there. It's like, can you fill in some blanks for me? And she goes, "Oh no, no, you were you were bad. You flatlined." And it's like, "Huh? Wow. I didn't realize it was that bad." But I don't know. So, how long were you there before you end up? Uh, I guess you end up headed to Landstow after that, or so um, I, I jumped around Afghanistan a bit, just them okay. trying to stabilize me to fly. Yeah, to a Germany, but um, I was in TK for a couple days, and then. Um, I, I want to say I went to CAF and then Bath and then Germany. Um, but yeah, it was from when I got blown up to when I left Afghanistan, it was, it was well over six days and that's a, that's a long time for, you know, getting hit. So, yeah. So when you got to Germany, is that when you first found out that the family knew that they'd notified them or when was it that you found yeah. that out? Uh, no, that was in yeah. That, uh, yeah, I think it was in Germany. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it was. Um, cause I remember that was the first time I had called my girlfriend at the time, which is now my wife. But, um, but yeah, we, uh, because I remember they, Red Cross has said that my, that I was, um, killed in action. And so, you know, obviously you can understand, you know, my dad and everything like what? And then it was immediate. And then, you know, the, I, he, my dad had told me like, um, pretty quick after they're like, Oh no, no, sorry. Your son's in Germany. <laughs> Our bad. Oh, well, yeah. You know? <laughs> oh my God. Really? <laughs> kind of thing is like, yeah, my dad's, yeah, well, everybody makes mistakes. Okay. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it was, yeah, it was in, um, it was in Germany when I found out that my family knew and yeah. then, um, and a lot of my friends that were getting blown up and whatnot like that, they were all going to Brooks army medical center. So, um, they asked me, you know, where I wanted to go, and it was I want to go to Brooks Army Medical Center and be with my friends. Yeah, 
So yeah. you end up getting there, and I think that was the first time then that your family's got a chance to to see you. Yeah, yeah. Dad shows up and he looks at my leg and he's just like, "Well, figured if you messed around with fire enough, you'd get burnt." And he just went and sat down. That's really all he said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, there was okay. a. There was a uh, there was a period there though that I think your dad kind of gave you a, a hard life lesson and uh, spoke to you kind yeah. of from the heart, but also being just real. And I think it's a really solid message, you know, for everybody for that matter. Yeah, I had um, I I had gone through some pretty pretty deep lows, um, you know, as far as I mean. Uh, you, you got to think the cocktail of meds you're on, methadone alone, it just it turns your brain into something that you can't even recognize. Um, but yeah, I was I, I was going through you know a pretty big phase of you know why did this happen to me? Um, poor me. Um, I let my team down. I let everybody down. It's you know I'm you know I'm just I'm stupid. Why did this? You know, and so I was I was going I was I was starting to turn into a victim of, you know, something that, you know, it's just, I mean, shit happens, mm -hmm. um, especially on, especially on the battlefield. So I was starting to take on this, like this victim mentality. And I remember my dad, um, saying, you know, basically like, Hey, now, now's the best time. Um, now's, there's no better time than now to have this conversation. Cause I, you know, I see, I, I see you're struggling. And he said, you know, um, I realize you're in a lot of pain and I realize, you know, the thoughts that are going around in your head. Um, he said, but you have to understand something. It's, it's this injury. You'll overcome this injury one day and it's how you handle it right now. It's how you deal with this is going to make the difference between you looking back and being proud of how you help, of how you handled that life changing incident or being ashamed of how you handled it. And he said, the way I see it is you have, you, you have two options. Um, your first option is, is you, you can become this injury. You can make this injury you, um, you can, uh, this, this injury will take you over and you can head down that path. It's, it, it's a lonely path, but you can become a victim of this and, and no one's going to blame you for that, but it's, you know, you're, you're going to be pushing people away. You're it's, it, it's, it's, it's a dark, it's a dark path because you've become a victim of, of, of circumstances. Yep. He said, or you can use this injury to make yourself a better man. You can use this injury, you know, to, uh, renew your relationship with God. You can use this injury to, you know, to, to make yourself that man that builds up people around him instead of tears them down. You can use this injury to, you know, to, to, to be that guy that you're laying in bed right now, wishing you would have done this, this, and this, well, you can do all that. You've got handed a, you got handed the reset button. Most men in life, they don't get the reset button. Um, and, and you got it. And now, you know, it's, it, it's what you do with it right now. That's this, this critical point is going to determine the rest of your life. And he said, I, I highly recommend you don't, you don't take the victim role out of this. It's hard to do because becoming a victim is extremely easy. That's the reason why it's such a problem today. Um, manning up and taking responsibility for your actions and understanding that life is not easy. Life is extremely hard. And um, in, in life, there's times life will beat you down. Um, understanding all that and, and actually taking responsibility um, for yourself and owning yourself, not letting life own you. 
that's that was all in the balance there that day and and I I just you know it, it was hard for me and becoming a victim is a lot easier than taking control because there was no one you know I, I wanted to point the finger at all kinds of stuff and and blame game and poor me and all this stuff because that's easy mm-hmm. but it's yeah hey just understand stuff happens life's yeah. hard you're never guaranteed an easy life because that's bullshit <laughs> yep and um and yeah but this will make you a stronger man if you let it and that's that's kind of one of the reasons why i wrote the book is because you know i do see some of the issues we're dealing with today and i do see people you know the easy button is to be that victim it's to be that oh well this happened to me so i'm this way or i grew up like this so i'm this way instead of just understanding hey life life can be hard man um and but own it own it and make it night you know you think about the when somebody goes through a period of adversity or they lose a loved one or whatever there's um a period of different emotions that overtake you you know and you're right i think um one of those is you know you start looking outwardly and at other people to blame you start Mm -hmm. then um, cycle analyzing everything of what you could have done um, you go into depression you know I mean there's yep. so many different phases that you end up going into and that's why I said the lesson I kind of led off that way the the lesson or the thing that the speech that your dad gave you that day is actually um, a very good one like you said that should be used in many things that we we do in life we should approach that same thing okay well you you're actually given a choice in everything you do you're at a crossroads you can take path a or you can take path b each of those are then going to have another path a or uh, path b you're not on a dead set path (laughs) you know I, i i battle with it all the time yeah yeah and and you're going to continue doing that because that's Mm -hmm. life you know, and yep. as you start getting older, that's where people say you have wisdom. Well, it's because you're able to re- reach back and look and say, well, listen, I made a lot of damn mistakes along the way. Yeah. And and I can't look at, well, if I'd have chose a different path, because you know what? I may have fought many different obstacles going that path as well. And maybe mm-hmm. worse. You just you just don't know. It's the what yeah. if. And, yeah. and that's the problem is a lot of people either live with the guilt and the what if or they live in the mentality of, like you said, the victim mentality where they're wanting to blame somebody else for their own issues. Yeah. And I, I mean, a lot, a lot of it, a lot of what I see happening and was happening to me as I was going, as I was trying to recover from this was I started to become entitled, you Mm. know, and I, and entitlement leads to victimization many times because it's like, well, this happened to me, so you owe me, or I deserve, or something like that. And it's like, again, you got to get yourself in check because nobody owes you anything, and you're not—you don't deserve anything. Yeah. And we've we've become a culture of oh, this this special guy, everybody gets a trophy. And it's like, no, you don't, and you're not that special. You may be mom's little special helper, but guess what? In life, you're just another person, just like I am, just like all your athletes and movie stars are. You're not special. You're just another, you're just, you're just in the rat race with us in life, you know? Yeah. And, and the big thing about it is people, um, I was starting to fall victim of entitlement and, and entitlement leads into victimization and it's, you know, well, this happened to me. So poor me, I'm allowed to feel this way. No, you're not. Get over it. You know, move on with life. And that was basically the speech is, 
is life doesn't owe you anything. What did you think? And I remember my dad saying, he goes, son, what did you think was going to happen? You're an 18 Charlie in special forces in Afghanistan. Like, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's a very, very good point. How long did it take all this to sink in? I mean, when he was throwing this at you, first off, I got chills with what you were saying, with what your dad um, shared with you and stuff, because Mm -hmm. it's almost one of those, you know, motivational speeches in a halftime football game type of thing. Yeah. (laughs) And and when you're feeling down, you're down 21 points against the, uh, the other team. And, and so how did it like, how did it like, did it resonate quickly or was it something that took you a period of time after he left or something like that before it all sunk in? No, it, it took a long time because, um, because the drugs, um, all of those, all those drugs that numb the pain and anything like that, it doesn't allow too much Clear to thinking. sink in. Yeah. 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 But enough of it sank into where I made up my mind that, you know, I was going to do everything in my power to own this situation and me owning it was getting back on active duty and going back to war. That was my um, way of owning it. But I had a few things to do first, like learn how to walk again and, you know, simple stuff like that. But <laughs> yeah, that's simple stuff. Well, you, yeah. had, you had a pretty interesting procedure as well, right? Wasn't it something that's a little bit different than the norm? Yeah. So when I got blown up, it was it was a pretty good time to get blown up if you're going to do it. Um, and they were uh, a lot of a lot of medical research going into this new program called limb salvage, and so basically with limb salvage, it's people who uh, were just right off the bat like ah well can't do anything with it cut it off you know mm-hmm. now they were starting to um, they were starting to look at other um, alternative methods other than just going straight underneath the knife and cutting your leg off and you got a prosthetic and they had this new device out called an ideo and um i it's inner something blah 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 it's it's really i don't know it's a big name but um this guy named uh ryan blanick he he um he invented the ideo and it was and it was given um, orthopedic surgeons like my orthopedic surgeon dr Shu. it was giving them other options rather than just just cutting. And so when I got there, um, my leg was the worst that they had had so far. But I, I had enough um, good tissue to where they basically said, hey, man, um, it, it, this is, this is going to help us out a lot. This is going to – this is we're going to – if you want, and I had to sign for this, you know, um, uh, because I could have just, just kept it amputated. Right. Um, but they said, uh, we're, we're going to do an exploratory surgery and we're going to, you know, do the limb salvage project or process with you. And if this works, um, your leg is, is going to be an extreme advancement in limbs in limb salvage. And it's going to help out, um, lots of people, soldiers, car wreck victims, all kinds of stuff, just with the technology that that's going to come from, from this limb salvage and, um, and so it was like, yeah, cause basically they reattached my leg. Wow. Um, so I, I said, yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like a challenge and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm game. So, um, yeah, I went into the limb salvage program and, um, and yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it definitely paved the way for, for, for some people that on the other, otherwise it just would have been, you know, cut off 
immediately. So explain this to, you know, for the people who are not familiar with this, and I'll be mm -hmm. the first to admit I'm not. So, mm -hmm. and it's probably something I should have done some research on, but is this like, like your leg is everything is back together again, or is it still a prosthetic? Um, how much of no. it is a prosthetic? You know, that type of thing. So basically, basically what the process was, was they were going to, um, between all the debridement surgeries and everything like that, uh, basically, so I had 28 surgeries to reattach my right leg. Holy jeez! And so basically, what they do is, um, I had, I had um, metal rods screwed into my my tibula, um, above and below the blast because the blast went up through my foot and exited out at my calf. So it was a pretty clean cut, um, which was impressive because a lot of a lot of times um, when you step on a um, in homemade explosive device, it's such like dirty HME that it just mangles just 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 like a meat grinder to your leg and there's nothing to salvage. Well, what I stepped on was such high quality HME that the blast wave went straight up through my foot, blew my foot in half and exited at my calf. And so it left, you know, what I what was a lot of damage to me. But in the orthopedic world, it wasn't it wasn't that much um, tissue damage to where they couldn't you know it wasn't a fighting chance to um, to you know to to salvage my leg and so I had uh, bolts going into all my bones, rods going through all my toes, rods coming in the back of my heel, everything to oh, like geez. to stabilize my foot again to yeah. where my 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 foot could you know heal because it was blown in half. And then um, the, my tibula, it, they basically just lined up my tib um, between the bottom and um, the, the top, and there was a gap there. And then they cranked everything down with, uh, with these halo devices that go into, you know, that the rods all attach to. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it was basically, all right, uh, the only thing that makes bone grow quickly is friction. So... Um, once you're, you know, once I was cleared to start actual physical therapy, the name of the game was just to pound the crap out of it, just to grow bone and just PT, you know, work out as hard as I could. Holy so, crap. Yeah. Uh, that sounds painful. Oh yeah. It was the most painful <laughs> thing I've ever done in my life. Never. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. How long was your uh, total treatment to get everything? You know, I understand that it was a lot faster for you. You had a pretty quick recovery, but you know. What was the average yeah. time that they told you and how long was it that you actually took? Um, I, I should have been there about two to three years um, going, you know, for everything with my leg. And then also, you know, as far as my activity level goes, I shouldn't have been at that level, maybe never again in my life. Um, but I, I got blown up September 12th of 2010 and I went back to seventh group, um, in November, 2011. And that was Jeez. after I got medically retired and I fought back on active duty through, you know, through a waiver process. Um, um, I grew back to two inches of, uh, tibula or whatever it was. Um, I, yeah, I just, just, I, I just went balls to the wall. Basically, the only way I could really say it is because, you know, I, I, I had, you know, my, my sergeant major came and saw me um, early on when I got blown up and 
And, you know, through, you know, he, he basically said, Hey, if it, you know, I, I'll make you a promise. If you get medically cleared, I'll send you back to war. It's basically what, how the conversation went. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, him and I, we, we still, we're real good friends today, but I don't think anyone thought that was going to happen because I, you know, I had plenty of people, you know, tell me like, Hey man, you're setting yourself up for failure. You're just, you're out here doing all of this because, you know, you're trying to go back to Afghanistan, but when that doesn't happen, cause it's not going to happen, um, you're going to be so depressed that now we're going to have to worry about your mental state of mind sure. because you are putting everything on this. And I understand that. Yeah. I understand that completely. But, um, he had told me that, and that was what my goal was, is I was, I was going back to Afghanistan. What so. was it like walking back into the team, you know, seeing the former teammates and more importantly, what was it that perhaps you thought went through their head, you know, because it, were there, was there an opportunity or did you hear later guys wondering, are you really going to be on an ODA? Are you going to be able to really? Yeah. 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 There was, so coming back, everybody did, you know, like the normal, Hey, welcome back. And you know how group guys are yeah. very, very brutal to each other and whatnot. But, um, but yeah, everybody, you know, Hey, glad you're back and whatnot. It's, okay, cool. Well, at that point in time, my company had left for Afghanistan so they're out they're they're back they're heading back to Afghanistan in 2012 and I was supposed to stay back at Eglin because I'm non-deployable. Yeah. I can I could sit in a desk. Rear detachment um, commander. Yeah, I can't <laughs> I I can't wear body armor. I can't have military boots on for longer than uh, it was it was a huge profile, a dead man's profile. Yeah. And so Basically, okay. And there was this program in seventh group called the Thor three program. And it was basically our return to war program. And so that's what, you know, if you want to, if you get hurt in a motorcycle accident or, or, uh, static line jump accident or something like that, this is what you go through to get cleared to go back to your team. And I was like, well, huh, I kind of got hurt. So I'm going to do this program yeah. and get cleared. And so I went and started up the program and, um, it, it was tough, but I was out doing, you know, I, I was just, I, I was destroying guys that had never been hurt. And so they, they couldn't deny that. And, um, and so I got the, uh, um, seventh group wrote a waiver, um, to override, uh, the big army's non-deployable status. They wrote a waiver saying, Hey, he can deploy, we'll take responsibility. And, um, and yeah, I was on, I was on a bird in March. Uh, 2012, heading back to Afghanistan. Holy and I, shit! Yeah, I showed up there, and uh, my sergeant major came up. He's like, "Wow, okay." So, and um, that's when you know he's basically, "Well, I said I'd send you back to war," and and he did. He sent me to the most IED'd area in Afghanistan at that time, which was Panjway District of Kandahar Province. Oh yeah, yep. holy cow! So how was it going back? You know. Sure, you, you, you want to get back into the fight and everything, but it's another thing to have the reality of, oh, my God, this could be part two. This could happen all over again. Yeah. Yeah, the reality was – so there, there was a couple of things I had to come to reality with. Number one is when I actually showed up, the team was not happy I was there because I was a liability. Yeah, they sure. knew They knew what happened, and I completely understand that. And so now the process of proving myself to them – you know, it was again, new guy all over again, yep. just like, holy cow. And so, um, and so 
Yeah, that was a that was a rough go for a while, but I understood it. I knew why the team was that way because I was I was a liability um, until I had proved myself. But that first mission we went out on, um, we were coming we were we were coming up to a break in the wall, and everybody knows you know Taliban they they IED the, the access points or the easiest um, path or the path of least resistance. They IED those because. Afghan military, they take the path of least resistance. They don't climb over the 12-foot walls and scale through trenches and stuff like that. They just walk down the path. Mm -hmm. And we came up to a break in the wall, and I hit it with my mine detector, and I got the positive, and I was like, uh-oh. And so I you know, started uncovering, got a portion of the pressure plate, and I was like, oh, crap. This is like I got to actually face one. And, uh, and yeah. And so I, uh, you know, first mission, uh, within the first hour, um, I, yeah, um, uncovered my first IED since, since almost losing my life to one. Wow. But yeah. that also <laughs> had to be, I would imagine a moment in which, because you're facing it, mm -hmm. um, any doubt, any fear or whatever could then immediately escape, leave and be like, all right, I'm, I'm good now. I, you know, I've come face to face once again with death yeah and this time i won you know yeah i mean uh i i was i i kind of did some dumb stuff whereas in you know when i got a hold of the pressure plate i wanted to that you know i wanted to dominate this ied and oh. so and so i did <laughs> i i pulled you know my job is not to interrogate ieds it's to um find fix and then destroy it right and and we call it blow in place and it's not to EOD it, but I pulled the pressure plate and then pulled the jug and everything. You know, I uh, got a corner of the pressure plate. Like, yep, that's a pressure plate. Got the yellow uh, packaging tape they use. And then I traced one of the cords over. Yep, there's the battery pack. Got the battery pack. Um, or what you think is the battery pack. Right. That's the scary part. Right. <laughs> and then I connected some surgical clamps to the wires and pulled it out with a um, 550 cord from about 50 meters or 50 feet back. Then I went and attached it in the jug and pulled it out. And yeah, and right. the team was just like, "What are you doing?" I was gonna <laughs> say, "There's like so many things here that could have gone wrong." Oh yeah, oh yeah. But I wanted, <laughs> I wanted that one underneath my belt. Oh sure. Like, yeah, yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to completely just interrogate one from top to bottom. That was me, and. Um, and yeah, stupid move. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. If I could go back in time, I would just put half a block of C four there and walk away. You know, like yeah. easy. <laughs> so four but. years later, we're gonna fast forward to a time period where um, this this is real, where really the kind of the the shit hits a fan. And mm -hmm. at that point, you guys are um, basically get caught in an ambush. If I understand it correctly, yeah. Um, then they're talking about when to take you specifically out. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so 2012 trip went, um, and then I did some down South, South Central America trips and then 2016 back to Afghanistan. And, uh, I, I, you know, I found myself, you know, I was running this, um, group of Afghans called the national mine reduction group or the NMRG. And so we're the guys in the very front clearing IEDs for the main element because it's a clearance operation. And, um, you, you know, you're not, you're not fast roping down on the buildings and stuff like that. It's, it, this is a village clearance. And so we, uh, we get pegged to head to Boglin 
province for um, for a substantial clearance operation. And so every everything goes off as it's supposed to. We infill with um, we're we're in um, Afghan home V's because we didn't want the Taliban knowing that Americans were there quite yet. And um, so okay, so you know we're dismounted, and um, I'm the most forward American in the element, and so I have an IR strobe on my helmet like you're supposed to. Um, and so, or some people use the fireflies or whatever, whatever. Right. But I had this, this old brick IR strobe and we're moving up in our first compound of interest that we're going to clear is, you know, through this orchard and it's, it's one o'clock in the morning and anybody who knows anything about Afghanistan, orchards are really bad, really bad areas because they booby trap the crap out of them. They have caches all over them and um, that's where usually their tunnel systems are and whatnot. So we, um, so, you know, we get the word, Hey, uh, clearance, clearance element, go up, start clearing through the orchard. So, okay. So we start moving through the orchard and, um, and we had gone about 25 meters when I heard this loud pop. And so everybody hits the deck kind of like you're supposed to. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to figure out what in the hell just happened. Well, at the same time, I'm caught up in some stuff. And so is um, the Afghan in front of me. He's all caught up. And he's like, what is going on here? And it turns out that we had hit a tripwire IED that they had put at chest level. And it didn't and detonate. No, it, it low ordered. And so the blasting cap went off. Oh, but the But the IED didn't go off. Man. Yeah. I mean, you got I've, the Grim Reaper walking right next to you. Uh, damn. Oh, no. I've... I, I, like I've, I've stepped on, or I've initiated, um, one, two, three, four, I've initiated four IEDs. Just one of them went off. And the <laughs> one that I, the one of them I stepped on, it only partially went off. Yeah. There was a, it was a 25 pound IED, but only Ooh. one cell went off. That saved my life. Wow. But, oh yeah, I'm not, I, I, I'm apparently not a good 18 Charlie because I've <laughs> hit, I've hit four IEDs and three, three of them low ordered, but we had, uh, yeah, we'd stumbled into this tripwire IED. Is like, okay, so we pick ourselves up. Like, Holy cow, man! Like now, now my senses are going nuts because if there's a tripwire IED, it's oh geez. And so we start moving forward again, and it's you know it's a little after one a.m. And in the distance, the compound of interest, I could see movement. It's like there's nobody here but bad guys. Like there are no civilians, and we were told that. It's like uh oh. So we start moving up a couple steps more, and I see this guy. He runs from one side to the other. And so I get my M4 up, and um, that's when the PKM opened up. I opened up, and it, it, ended up, uh, it ended up being the PKM opened up on us from 17 meters away from my position. Ooh. So I, I, we hit the ground, you know, again, like you're supposed to, and the entire side – of the compound, the entire mud hut wall, of the compound just lit up in fire from all the muzzle flashes coming out. And so the PKM had hit us and now the um, Taliban had got us in an L shaped ambush. And so my element was cut off from the main element. Mm-mm-mm. And, um, so we're, uh, we're, you know, I, that, that kind of firepower, I've never had that much sustained firepower on me at that close of a distance ever before. So, you know, I'm, you know, I got adrenaline's running, I'm scared. And, um, this guy keeps shooting RPGs at us 
and but he can't quite locate our position and so about the third time he jumped out he just happened to jump out directly you know about 20 meters away from right where my barrel of my weapon system was at and I remember I remember um getting a beat on him and I, I put like 15 rounds and he dropped so I was like, okay all right let's keep going so we still can't move they can't call in an airstrike at this time because we're we're danger close. We're 17 meters from the PKM. Yeah. Well, then, you know, we get the call over the radio that the Taliban, they're targeting the guy with the flashing helmet. It's like, well, this is an IR strobe. How do you know it's flashing? It's because they got night vision. Like, oh, crap. So there's a couple of their guys that have night vision. So I take the strobe off my helmet and I throw it as close as I can get to where the PKM had opened up on us at. And I was just like, hey, I, I don't know what to do, but the PKM's over there. So finally, um, finally, you know, the JTEX, they, they get authorized for, I don't even think you can call it danger close. It's basically dropping on your position. Yeah. Because it was like, if we don't, he's dead. Um, and, and, they'll, and they'll capture him. Like, we have to drop now. And, um, so I, I just remember he came over the radio and, um, at this time he told us, you know, get low and, and just like, just hold on, man. And I remember, so I told, I told the Afghans up there, I was screaming at him, like, get low in the ditch, get low in the ditch. And I was in the middle of the road. So I'm trying to get as low as I can. So we stopped firing at the enemy, which increases their right rate of fire on us. So rounds are coming in like crazy, and I was like, "Holy cow, man!" <laughs> How many seconds longer? Yeah. Oh my yeah, god. Please drop. And then we heard that um, fast mover overhead, and JTAC came over the radio one more time. He said, "Ryan bombs away," and um, is boom. <laughs> Five hundred pounds. Yeah, and it felt. Yeah, I never felt anything like that before. It. The it, concussion it, had to be like crazy. Oh yeah, I remember I had clear liquid running out of my ears. It just I kept trying to stand up and I'd fall over, stand up and I, you know, because you're trying to run, but you're still your body can't do or your brain won't allow your body to do what you're trying to do because it just got absolutely yeah, destroyed. Yep. by by that impact cuz I remember when it hit, I was thinking like crap. Like this building, the mud hut the, the the mud compound walls they may come down on us and crush us oh yeah i was yeah and um no it was it was i mean we we got hit with branches and dirt and gravel and stuff like that but no real big chunks and it was just like holy cow man so i'm grabbing my guys and we're tripping and falling and kind of trying to get back to the main element so we can drop another bomb uh we hit them with the second airstrike and then it's like okay let's go clear the compound and wow. I remember the captain walked up to me and he goes, dude, are you, are you good? And I, it just sounded like everything was in an echo, like a hallway. And I was, yeah, man, I'm, <laughs> I, yeah, I guess I'm good. And, uh, that, that started, that started the village clearance. Um, but that wouldn't be the last time that we would, uh, have to duke it out with the Taliban that day. There was uh, a five hour firefight, I think is what it ended up being, right? Yeah, so that initial tick in the morning happened, and then as we, you know, we'd successfully cleared through the village, um, we had blown up so many IEDs. Like I ran out of C4. We were just having to mark them and bypass them because there, there was just so many IEDs and 107 rockets and everything else in this area. It's the biggest hornet's nest I've ever been into, ever. Mm, mm. 
And um, so we, you know, we had reached our limit of advance, our LOA. And it's like, okay, hey, it's time to withdraw. Well, there's a problem. Um, the Afghans, they don't want to hold the ground we just fought for. They say, well, we're not staying here. You guys stay here. They said, this is a really dangerous place. We can't stay here. It's like, uh, since the beginning of war, the ground that you conquer, you usually hold. Right. Like, well, we're not staying here. Like, okay, all right. Well, that's that's not really what the plan was. <laughs> well, at this at this same time, um, one of the sergeant ma- one of the Afghan sergeant majors with the commandos, he came up to me with a terp, and he's like, "Hey, man, um, we have a bunch of people." I don't know if they're men, women, but we, there's a lot of people moving this way, like 15 to 20 of them. It's like, okay, are they villagers? He goes, I don't know, but I don't think so. Not for out here. It's like, crap. And then, um, so this this conversation is still ensuing, you know, with our leadership to try and get them to stay. At that point in time, you know, I told Team Sergeant, I was like, hey, man, we got to go, dude. Like, um, they're telling me dudes are rolling in right now. We got to get out of here now. And uh, that Afghan came back up to me and he goes, hey, yeah, what what do you want to do? And I had turned to the team sergeant and said, hey, man, we need to leave. He said, "Okay, yeah, let's, you know, no, no longer. It didn't take him any longer to say, like, yeah, let's let's start our let's start the withdrawal. Then this then it just everything lit up broke loose. Yeah. All hell broke loose. It was I mean, between. PKMs, RPGs, 82 millimeter mortar rounds, AK-47s, um, sniper rounds, everything else. It just, it was insane. So we all, we all scatter for ditches, you know, cause you're, you're getting cover. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking up the road, I was in a ditch behind a small little wall and I remember looking up the road and it looked like, like a thousand horses were running down this dirt road. That much, that much, uh, dust was being kicked up from all the rounds coming down. Holy cow. And uh, and so, you know, finally after, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, you know, the, the rate of fire, you know, dies down and they quit engaging all their, you know, they're indiscriminately engaging and now they're pinpointing targets. But I remember looking up the road and there's a body in the road and, and it's like, okay. And then um, about 10 meters from me on the other side of the ditch, this uh, Taliban PKM gunner had pinned in on three Afghans that were caught in this ditch. And they couldn't get out. And, and so, and he was just, he was walking rounds in on them, just dumping 7.62. And I, I'm not really sure, you know, I kept trying to get them to sprint over my way. They wouldn't do it. So uh, I just, I jumped out of behind the ditch I was in, sprinted, you know, up the road, grabbed the first thing I could grab, which was this dude's hair, yanked him out, hoping to God the other three would come and, we sprinted back and not one of us got hit and it was just wow miracle yeah it, it was just zips and cracks and and everything mud hut wall splintering off and stuff just from the rounds coming in but we were able to pull those dudes back to our position and um and then you know we get the heart stopping call over the radio eagle down and it's like okay we have an american down is he dead is he wounded we don't know and then another eagle down it's like, oh crap, man, this is this is getting bad. And then the Afghan wounded starts pouring in, and you got, you know, you, dudes are bleeding everywhere and whatnot. Well, we're still stuck in this ditch. We have sniper fire, um, sporadic PKM fire, and then we hear the dreaded 
um, thump of a mortar round coming in. And it's like you could hear it leaving the tube. It's, oh, God. And this mortar round came in and, and hits 30 meters from our position. So, all right, bracketing time. Yeah, he's going to start hit, dialing it in. Yep. I'm going to hit 30 meters back. I'll hit probably 15 meters in front of you, and then I'm going to split the difference. Mm-hmm. And so then another one comes in. It's like, all right, that third one, he's going to split the difference. We need to go. And so, yeah, we, uh, we, we, yanked, we yanked up the Afghans that were with us, the wounded, whatnot, and we started heading to the first place that we had established as a casualty collection point or a CCP. And it's like, okay, we got a CCP. Let's start treating the wounded. And, I mean, there's a lot of people are coming in. Um, and so we've got, you know, we, we have Afghan commandos that are, you know, on all the stretchers, everything like that. And dudes are wounded. Americans are, they're getting bandaged up. And uh, then rounds start to impact inside the CCP. Oh. Well, what was going on was this entire village was a network of tunnels. And so they were popping up out of tunnels and able to get to their pre-positioned fighting areas and uh, engage us from there. So, so okay, well, this entire time we still haven't had bombs on target because the aircraft can't distinguish between them and us. There were no lines. It was like they're in your lines. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a really bad thing. Mm-hmm. And so we, um, yeah, and so we finally, we were able to get some separation and that first bomb comes in and it lowers this um, two-story tall structure that had a sniper in it so the sniper's down but we still need to move so we had uh, located another place for a ccp and we start carrying you know carrying the wounded over there and um and a couple of the bodies and we're heading we're heading over to this new ccp and it has um it has a large field out in the back so you know you can um you can get helicopters in and whatnot and now the bombs are starting to drop and it's like okay good deal we got air on tart. We got air overhead. We're starting to break their back, or we thought. Mm-hmm. And um, and okay, good. So we got everybody. Finally, it's like, all right, hey, do the head count. We need to get out of here now. We just need to let. We just need to let um, the air force just lay waste to this place. We need to leave. There's no civilians in the area, so collateral damage. Hey, it is what it is. And so we start going through men, weapon, and equipment. Well, we have men that are missing on the battlefield so we're missing at that point in time i think five afghans and um two of the guys were actually my nmrg guys Mm. so it's like okay this is uh this is bad because you know we got to go get them nobody gets left behind so we start moving into you know retracing kind of where we're at staying away from the bulk of the enemy fighters and uh it's like, okay, we got one. Here's, okay, here's a body. Got him. Okay. Here's another body. Okay. Got him. Good. We got two. We're still missing three. Okay. Hey, we got, we got Bez Mueller. He was my NMRG guy. Okay. We got him. All right. Good to go. We're missing two guys. It's like, where are they? It's like, <laughs> I don't know. Um, and the, one of the guys we were missing, his name's Abe and he was the NMRG commander. Him and I had known each other for a long time. And so, and so the last place I saw him was when we were up in the very front and I was telling, I told our team sergeant, Hey, I'm going to start getting the guys ready to withdraw. Um, I'll get my, my, um, NMRG guys and we're going to, we're going to start doing the order of movement and then all hell broke loose. But, um, that was the last place I saw him. And so it's like, huh. 
it's all the way back up this road that we just came from that looked like a thousand horses running down it. Yeah. And there's yeah. still there's still rounds coming down it. But um, we had dropped on the mortar tube, which was a good thing. And there was, you know, uh, the RPG, he was pesky, but he, he had his head down. Um, we had air overhead. Well, the problem was, is we were going back into basically the fatal funnel. And so one of the JTACs, he, he came up, he's like, hey, man, I got a plan. And again, the reason why uh, combat controllers, man, they're, they're awesome. Yeah. But he's like, I got a plan. I'm going to, we're going to do Apache gun runs. And we're basically, as these Apaches start their movement down this road and just, just 30 mic mic everywhere, we're going to take off sprinting behind them. It's like, man, what movie did you watch this time? <laughs> yeah. But that was, that was the plan. And so, so Apache, you lay you laid down basically suppressive fire with thirty mic mics coming from an Apache, and you're running back behind it as they're doing their strafes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So the Apaches came in, and it was it was almost like, you know, we're we're waiting on a race, and it's like hold, hold, hold. All right, let's go, and we just <laughs> took off running down the road, and uh, we got to the initial point of contact, and I looked in the ditch, and you know they're a. Yeah, Abe was dead, and then the one missing commando, um, he was still up there, and they were both KIA. And so, yeah, we had to we had to get those guys out of there. We were still taking pop shots, but the Apaches were doing a very good job. Yeah, and um, and we got Abe and the other commando back, and we had 100% on men, which is the most important. And um, and yeah, so we uh, American soldiers they'll they'll go to the ends. Of, ends of the earth and back to make sure that everybody leaves that battlefield, whether you're dead or alive. And, uh, and we proved it that day. Cause you know, we brought home our Afghan um, counterparts. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And during this time, uh, you earned, I guess the silver star. Yes. Yeah. Um, so for your actions and everything. And I mean, that's like you said, that's right out of a movie, which you just described there. I mean, <laughs> if you, you couldn't yeah. have produced that any better, um, how, how was it that the American Apaches knew you guys as you guys were running back or heading back to the uh, CCP and stuff? I mean, how did they, how were they able to distinguish you guys from the enemy? Cause our, cause our JTAC's a stud. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, that's just, that's just crazy. Mm-hmm. And these guys, your enemy were underneath tunnels and everything. And that's how they were able to keep movement is they were going through the tunnels, popping themselves up, basically locating you, popping back down, moving yeah. through the tunnels, and following you along the whole path. Yeah, and they almost shot down a Blackhawk too. It it had to leave. It left the area smoking, like mm. on fire. It's like, oh man, that I seen a movie about this, and it's very bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yep. Yeah, we didn't want to have that happen again. So you. Uh, you wrote the book tip of the spear to really cover everything uh, that we just talked about and some other stuff as well. But what were some of the things that you really wanted individuals to take away after reading the book? I mean, because um, I know that there was more to this that you really wanted individuals as uh, key points to really take away some of that we already discussed a little bit earlier, but what were some of the other things, especially to our veteran community? So, you know, right, writing the book, I didn't sit down and say, I'm going to write a book. Um, what it ended up happening was, um, I, I, you know, I had, I was having some, you know, some issues coming back, especially in 2016. And then I went back to Afghanistan in 2017, then 2018. 
and then, you know, 2020. And so basically I, you know, I was, I was just dealing with a lot. And, um, I remember talking with one of our chaplains. It's, you know, basically, Hey, um, I, I just, I don't really know how to, to, to get all this out there. I don't, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And, um, and I said, it just, it feels like it's just built up on my chest and I, I just need to like, how do you, how do you put it somewhere else? And he's like, have you ever thought about writing? It's like, well, no. Um, and he goes, yeah, man, it's right. Writing therapy. You just, you're, you're taking it from your chest and you're putting it on a word document. So you don't ever really lose it. It's still there, but you know, it, you're putting it somewhere else. And so 2017 trip, um, we had, you know, we had gotten into, into the business again <laughs> and it was, you know, it was a pretty bloody trip. And, um, and yeah, one, one of the, one night when I was just like, man, I like, I, I don't know if I can do this. Um, I remember, you know, cause my demons were just really haunting me and everything mm-hmm. like that. And I remember I just opened up my laptop and I started typing and it just was like page after page after page. And it, and it did, it felt, it, it felt amazing because I, I wasn't throwing it away, but I was taking it from my chest and putting it on something that I could come back to when I wanted and I remember like, you know, one page turned into 10 to 100 to, you know, now, you know, months of writing just when I had time. And now I'm looking at like 500 pages of stuff. So then I start going back through and I start to kind of like um, organize it, which is the way the book is right now. And I organize it all out and everything. And I was like, man, that's, that was a lot of work. And no one likes to do all that and not get an opinion. And so, you know, I asked a couple of my friends and then family and then some other people was like, hey, what do you think? And they're like, dude, this is this is me. Like you wrote about me or or yeah, man, like you didn't you didn't have to step on an IED like that's that that's me. I, I deal with, you know, and stuff like that. It's, dude, you, you need to get this out there for people. So that's how the book came about was mm-hmm. was basically writing therapy. But my overall, like what I've learned through it all, because that book was my therapy from keeping everything inside and, and, and basically, um, it was your journal. It wasn't a book at that point, right? Yeah. I mean, it was more of a personal journal. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, I mean, and, and I was able to, to really handle, you know, cause I, I was having temper problems, drinking problems, just, just, just turn, I mean, again, becoming a victim, Mm-hmm. and not taking control of my life. Um, and so I started to, through the process, I started to learn that um, you don't need to be in Afghanistan or Iraq to have your own IEDs. I believe everybody's faced with IEDs in their life. Um, and everyone, believe it or not, everyone's going to hit one. Um, yeah, it's a metaphor. You can you can call it anything you want, but that's because that's my job. And I, I, I do. I believe everyone will face their IEDs in their life. And when you hit one, you know, you, you got, you, you basically have three options. You can, you can, you can lay there and accept death and just say, Hey, well, I guess, I guess I'll just die. You can lay there and you can wait for help instead of, you know, it's like, well, I'll just wait, I'll wait for the people to come and help me. Or you can continue, you can keep trying to stand up and get pissed off and trying to get your gun back in the fight. And even though you keep falling over and falling over, you keep trying to stand up and you keep trying to move forward. And that actually, you know, that's what the the message is, is basically, 
regardless of how many times you fall over, because I've fallen over way more than I've stood up, but always continue to try and stand up and get your gun in the fight. And I think um, for me, it, it works that way. I know um, in my mind, I can, you know, it kind of works that, you know, we are, we all face our IEDs in life. We really do. Um, but well, this is a difficult period, I think, for <clears throat> I'm speaking of the holiday period, especially. And of course, with coronavirus and everything that's going on for the veteran community, this is this is already a difficult period. You compound that by having, you know, lockdowns and everything else that go on. And and I think you're right. I think there are a lot of veterans that, you know, do end up facing their demons a lot. And yep. each of us try to slay them in a different way. And, you know, I think your book is a great message, Ryan. I think it's not just there. I was in the Valley of death type of thing. You're, you <laughs> yeah. know, it's, it happens to be your story. And so there it is. Um, and it's your journal of how you dealt with those situations and those emotions. But I think what's great is that you're also, you know, very humble in, in showing that, Hey, listen, this is what I did, but what my true message is, is I'm trying to tell you, I'm no different than you. I'm no yep. better than you. And we are very much alike and not different in this situation. And, yep. you know, there's a positive message here to take away. Yeah, 100%. This isn't a book about being a Green Beret or or anything like that. If you just look back in the it, as you read through the book, you'll see, you know, the struggles I had um, when I was, you know, as a kid and some of the stuff that happened. You'll see my failure after failure after failure. And, and wanting to give up, um, coming close to being one of the 22 a day, you know, you, you'll see all that until I finally just had to, enough was enough. I need to take control. And it's not that, you know, the minute you say, oh, I have control. Life is great. It, it, it's not. But it's the understanding that life is hard. If you know that life doesn't owe you anything, you are way more able to deal with the hardships of it than you are if you think you're owed everything. And I... I I had an entitlement issue that turned me into a victim. Yeah. And it's dangerous. What's, Extremely dangerous. What you just said there, though, is so important and key, too, is that, and you said at the very beginning, the very first time, is, but you constantly have to deal with that, right? Because mm -hmm. um, you dealt with in the very beginning when your father told you that. But what you're sharing is that you constantly have to live with not being kind of sucked into the vacuum Yep. You know, and and pull yourself out each time to realize that, hey, wait, I, I, I got to slap myself in the face again. I need to move forward. I'm calling myself, you know, I'm going back into the victim mode again. I'm going back yep. into the entitlement mode. And and so it's not a one and done. No, 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 no. It's a constant work in progress because life is constantly changing. And so and and just when you think that, hey, I, I've got control, you know, this this is great. Life is good. Here comes that, here comes that other yep. life-altering you know, experience that just completely throws your faith into, into disarray. But the fact of the matter is, is having control over your own life rather than having life control you, regardless of how hard it is, I mean, that, I, I wouldn't want something else controlling me. And, and unfortunately... You know, we see it a lot today. Um, we we do see we do see how certain segments of our society are able to control, you know, um, people through through just uh, I don't know media or or whatnot like that. And people people have lost the art of 
you know, having their own self identity, being their own person. They all, everyone wants to be somebody else instead of who they were or who they are. And that's because, you know, we had forgot that no one's, none of us are special. We're all, we're, we're all unique individuals, but we're not special. We're all part of the same rat race, like I said earlier. And so people was like, well, I'm nobody. So I want to be like this person or this happened to me. So I deserve this and this. And, and, and we've, we have forgot how to take ownership over our lives. But once you start to figure that out, um, I will say it, do, it does get easier because you do you do stop letting yourself become a victim so quickly. Yeah, it doesn't take as long for you to pull yourself out of the vacuum. <clears throat> yep, most definitely. I I could I can certainly see that um, have experienced that, and I think over time, like you're saying, you begin to recognize the signs that are coming at you that you're allowing yourself to fall prey to that, and so you're quicker then to turn it around. And and turn it, you know, back into something. And again, it's going to keep doing that your whole life. And the sooner that you recognize Mm -hmm. that, the better off you're going to be. It's a great message that I think anybody can really benefit from, not just those within the veteran space. But I think for for those of us who are still in act, you know, for people who are still in active duty, for those of us who are veterans, I think it certainly resonates. The message resonates a lot. Um, And it's something that if it means reading a book to help you to get through that and realize that you're not in it alone yeah. and then go buy the damn book, you know, because you, you need to hear this message either through you sharing it through a podcast like this, or, you know, through your book or something like that. I think you're just trying to get the message out there and it's a, yeah. it's a great message, Ryan. Yeah. I, yeah, I appreciate it. And I, I know if it, I know if it could help me um, again, I'm no different than anyone else listening to this. Um, at all. I just probably have fallen down a lot more than, <laughs> than your average, but that should give some the reader that should give them a little bit of, uh, encouragement. Like, wow, if this guy can pull himself, you know, <laughs> right. cause I've heard that from a couple of people. They're like, yeah, I, I, I did feel sorry for myself until I read your book. And I was like, problem solved, <laughs> you know? Uh, Ryan, I could probably go on another two hours talking with yeah. you, man. I, I really appreciate you coming on and, um, you know, talking about this, the book is tip of the spear and mm-hmm. maybe you can share where people can find you on social media as well as where they can find your book. Yeah. So I, um, have a website that's, uh, Ryan M Hendrickson.com. And then I also, I'm on Instagram at, um, tip of the spear R M H. And that's that, those are the easiest ones right there. I'll put the uh, the link uh, to your website on the notes and the show notes and stuff where people will be able okay. to find it easier uh, as they listen to this. And at the conclusion of it, they want to click that. Go buy the book. I encourage everybody to do that. Um, follow you on Instagram, all those types of yeah. great things. you got a great message you're putting out there. And again, Ryan, I really appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you having me. It's been, it's been awesome. Thank you. Yeah, you bet, brother. 